Um, welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. We are thankful that you're here to worship with us this morning. And uh, as we have uh, had some time of prayer and, uh, and worship, we now look to the scriptures. And so if you're turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, we continue in our study in the book of Ephesians. And it brings us uh, to really the last few sections, the last couple sections that will be found here in this great letter to the Christians in Ephesus. As you turn there, um, the subject for uh, the next uh, few weeks as we walk through the second half of chapter 6, the, the final chapter of the book of Ephesians, brings us to the culmination of all the things that Paul wants to speak to us. And it will surprise us, in, I think, in a couple of ways. One, it will surprise us because um, it speaks of things that we're not used to. Um, if I tell you that we are at war, that may not sound as sincere as, uh, as it should. Because in terms of spiritual warfare, most of us, and maybe I'm speaking mostly for myself, but most of us do not take our spiritual battles that seriously. Our minds are captivated by the here and now, the things we could touch, the things that we are concerned about, um, the, the circumstances of our lives. And it's very difficult for us to imagine that there is a spiritual war that we are literally engaged in. We don't think much about that. If I, if I speak to you this morning about an actual and personified evil with the name of Satan or the devil, again, theoretically, we would say amen. Most of us theologically would agree that whatever the scriptures say, these things are true. We'd have a hard time identifying the reality of Satan and his minions as they course through this world and they cause difficulties and really as they fight and struggle against us um, in our walk, trying to please the Lord in this life. If I speak to you this morning about something like putting on armor or getting ourselves ready for the battle that is regular and that is a normal part of existence. Again, I think in our material existence, it kind of, we, we naturally, rationally push against any idea or thought that, that we are caught in some kind of a, a weird metaphysical spiritual reality where we have to actually put on some kind of armament to engage in the world around us. We're talking about things that are so, I don't know, kind of out there, non-material, that it almost feels like this can't really be true. Or if we do affirm because it is stated in Scripture that it is true, it is certainly true at arm's distance. It may be true for you because you're going through something right now. So maybe you're going through some spiritual battles. Maybe true for other people because, you know, because they're obviously living in sin, so they're losing their spiritual battles. But it must not be true for us because we don't feel a need to put on anything besides our cup of coffee, our normal toast in the morning, and go about our day as if everything in our lives is dependent upon our own ability, strength, and will. We should know better because the scriptures and God speak to us quite literally of a spiritual battle that rages around us. It, this is the topic that Paul the Apostle would end this phenomenal letter on. 
I mean, think about the wealth and the things that he's talked about in the opening chapters, right? Talking about God's plan of redemption through all of eternity and that before he even thought of creating a universe, a material world, he knew you. And he called some of you to be his own. He sent his son by that perfect timing in the history of the world. He sent his son to die on a cross so that we might be forgiven of our sins. Think of all the wondrous things of what it means that we were dead in our trespassing sins. And he has made us alive together with Christ. The fact that we are saved not because of what we do or don't do, but because of his grace. So that his, his glorious grace would be just his renown. It would be to his praise. Think of all the practical things that Paul has addressed starting in chapter 4 about how we walk in imitation of God, how we walk in love, how we walk in wisdom. And in the midst of that, how we engage with one another, those that are most intimate to us, husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. I mean, regardless of our human relationships, that there is a means or a right way to live to live out and walk out love, to live and walk out wisdom, to engage ourselves in harmony, in blessed union, in fellowship, in, in encouragement, in one anothering, all of those wonderful things that are stated. And at the top of all of that, this isn't just Paul throwing in an aside. This isn't the PS at the end of his letter. This is where he's going to. He will conclude with this idea of spiritual warfare. He will conclude with this concept that this is what we need to grasp so that all the other things might prove out to be true and blessed in our lives. That the gospel reality, its reality, its truthfulness, its experience in our lives is dependent upon these things, these final spiritual battle, this, this final armament, the stuff that God has given to us, the provision he's given to us, so that we might think rightly and we might live rightly and we might worship rightly while we are still here on this planet. And so as we come to this, uh, this last, last teaching portion of the book of Ephesians, um, I would direct us and I will remind us again and again that this is the crescendo. This is the one thing that Paul would have us to take away above all other things, all right? So let me read to you verses 10 through 13, and then we will do our best to unpack this um, for godly purposes and for us to understand what it means to have strength for spiritual war. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we come to this portion of Scripture, we are, we are reminded that uh, we are often too materialistic not just in the coveting of material things, Lord. I'm sure that is part of our struggles. But in the, in the, 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 captive, the captive nature of our own hearts. Lord, we only believe what we see. We are only consumed by what is before us. 
And we forget that the most significant things that happen in our existence, in our lives, and even unto eternity are spiritual. They are not flesh and blood. So help us, Father, as we look to the scriptures now to understand these principles, to think carefully about what it means to be strong in your power, to stand against all that will, that will rise up against us. Father, we are convinced by the testimony of your word that there are so many things that will challenge us, that will upend us, that will, that will try to seek to devour us. And Lord, we are also promised from your word that you have gone before us and that the work of Christ is finished and accomplished. So help us to put on that, a heart of faith that trusts in you despite all circumstances so we might live according to your purposes and we might, we might consciously put our faith in those things that are not visible, that we trust in Jesus Christ, his atoning work, and his continuing ministry to us until we go home to him. We praise you for your grace and ask for your strengthening now. In Jesus' name, amen. So strength for spiritual war. And we'll look at some of the armaments in later weeks. But this is just a simple breakdown of what we are looking at in verses 10 through 13. It's kind of an introduction um, to this idea of spiritual warfare at the culmination of the letter to the Ephesians. Um, verse 10 is a simple statement, be strong in God's purposes. And then kind of a rehashing of that in verse 13, that we are to stand firm in God's armor. But in the middle is the explanation, is the how and the why, right, is, is we need to prepare for spiritual war. As we have been studying the book of Ephesians, what we have recognized is that Paul is fond, especially in the second, the practicum, right, the second half, um, chapters 4 through 6, he is fond of a singular word, and that's walk. And we said that that term walk means how do we get from point A to point B? How do we get from where we are in this life now to that time when we go home to be with him or he comes for us? How do we conduct our lives? It speaks of living, but it speaks more of lifestyle, the manner of which we walk. And Paul has used it several times, five times to be exact, that we are to live, to walk in love we're to live, to walk in, uh, in unity. We're to live, walk in wisdom, etc. There's so much there that is about how we are to live. And so when we get to this particular portion of scripture, just following all the household codes, this is how you walk in love and wisdom in the home. This is how you conduct yourselves in the most intimate relationships. And now he begins in verse 10, talking about being strong in God's power. He begins with a simple statement, finally. Right? Oh, wait, what happened? Oh, there he goes. Finally. This is the crescendo. This is the climax of the letter. This is the final word that he would leave us and leave these Ephesian Christians. He says, finally, with all that is said, built upon all that is said, let me give you a singular command. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's an imperative, second person plural, that, that is for the entire church and for every church that will read this letter and for every Christian is a command 
that based on all the things that have been spoken, all that Christ has accomplished for us, all the death and dying that we were part of in terms of our sinfulness, and because we are now redeemed, our relationships to each other, our relationship to the Lord, all of that redeemed and new, on that basis, finally, do this. Take this away. Be strong in the Lord. It's a command that is given to us in the passive, which is kind of weird. I mean, we could even translate that, be strengthened, right, in the Lord. That, that's like our English says, be strong in the Lord. And the idea is that we receive strength, not that we build it up in ourselves. Christ Jesus is the one that will give us that strength. So it says clearly, be strong in the Lord. There is a source from which we, we get that strengthening from. It's not simply an issue of your own willpower, of your own personal holiness, how you have accomplished so much and what you are able to do. It's not an issue of your intellect or how much you understand or how much theology you can drink in. All of those things may be helpful, but ultimately our strength must be found outside of ourselves. If we're to engage in spiritual warfare, then whatever strength that we have has to be from outside ourselves. This isn't new to the letter to the Ephesians. If you scan back a couple of chapters, chapter 3, verse 14, Paul lifts a prayer for these Ephesian Christians. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And listen to what he says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened, passive, with power through his spirit in your inner being. So Paul has already started to speak of these things. In fact, almost everything that he will address in this final section on spiritual warfare, he has already addressed in some form in the rest of the letter, in the earlier part of the letter. And here, if he's talking about being strengthened, he has already mentioned that. He prays to the Father on behalf of these Christians that they might be strengthened with power through the Spirit in their inner being. He has asked God to strengthen them. And what that tells us right off the bat is that the strength that we need for this life is not found in whether or not we could just kind of flip a switch and just kind of bear and grin it. It's not found in whether or not you're smart enough. You can figure something out. Or maybe you just need to escape this one. You need to run away. It's not found in what you have capacity to do or not to do. The strength that we need to finish this race that God has given to us is found in the Lord, in the strength that God provides. In the prayer in Ephesians 3, it was the, the strength that is given through, through this Holy Spirit in our inner being. So it is God who gives us whatever strength is necessary for the work that must be accomplished. What this tells us about our relationship to the Lord and our living is that it's not just that we live for the Lord, we do. But it's also that we live in the Lord. We live by his power. We live according to what he has given us, our capacity to handle. It is his strength. In fact, look at the rest of verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Passive. Receive the strength that is from the Lord. And it describes that strength this way. And in the strength of his might. That the second part, the and in the strength of his might, just kind of, uh, it serves as a means of clarifying the first. It is to say, be strong in the Lord. That is to say, in the strength of his might. 
how does it look like? What does it look like to be strong in the Lord? Well, it means to find divine power in just the, the piling on of terms. You notice that? You're to be strong in the Lord, right? And in the strength of his might. The piling on of terms to kind of explicate or to further clarify what we're talking about, Paul seems to suggest very strongly that with all that is said and done, your success will be determined not by you, but by the strength of the Lord. And so that we are clear, we're talking about a strength that is a strength of his divine might. His power to create out of nothing. It was like, you know, when, when, the, when the boys were young, we'd drive around and we used to play like that God created everything game, you know? And some of the parents kind of play something like that. You drive in the car and then someone says like, oh, look at that cloud. It looks like, I don't know, it looks like Pikachu or something. You're like, yeah, yeah interesting. Who made those clouds, right? Well, God did, right? That's the answer from the back seats, right? Oh, well, who made those trees? Well, God did. And I think it was Noah, when he was really little, he says, and who made that car? Like, you know, he's playing too. Who made that car? And I'm like, um, humans did, right? And humans did. But see, they didn't make it just out of ex nihilo. Nobody just snapped their fingers and there was a car. They made it out of all the materials that God had hidden in the earth. Right? They have to dig out ore to make metals and then refine them in certain ways. They have to, they have to actually like drain a tree. To get rubber for tires? That's nuts. I mean, everything that we create is a subdivision of the things that God has put into the world that we might create because he is the ultimate creator. He is the God that has created the entire universe, not just the wonders of this one planet. And he is able to give life to that which has no life. We're talking about a power, a miraculous power. An amazing power, a godlike power, and that is the power of his might, the strength of his might. That is what God has capacity to do. And Paul is saying, you draw on that strength. You draw on that kind of power. If we feel like listless, spiritually speaking, if we feel like defeated, like, man, we're barely hanging on. We can't get through this day. Perhaps it's because the source of strength is you or your own will or your own desires or your own hopes. Those are faulty, mortal, fragile. We as believers are called to be strong in the Lord. And that strength is the strength of God and God only kind of might. John Calvin put it this way. He means that our difficulties are far greater than if we had to fight against men. Where we resist human strength, sword is opposed to sword. Man contends with man. Force is met by force, skill by skill. But here, the case is very different, for our enemies are such as no human power can withstand. So see, so what we need is not more of me, right? A more disciplined me, a more capable me, a more self-denying me, what we need is Jesus Christ in him enthroned in my heart. What I need is the strength that God supplies. We are called to be strong in God's power, not just to be strong, hard stop. 
Christians are supposed to be strong, but not because we are strong, not because we are impressive. We read, right, from uh, 1 Corinthians 1, how we are not the strong, the smartest, the, the, the greatest of this world. He calls fragile, broken beings, and he fills them with his spirit so that we are empowered by him. So this spiritual battle requires more, more power than we can muster in ourselves. But we find Christ's power to be sufficient. That's the point. The command is not to bootstrap it. You know, suck it up, do the best you can, hang in there, show them what you got. Now that's great for a football game, right? Because win or lose, you're going to put out there the best that you can mentally and physically put out there. And then that's it. What we need is something deeper, something greater. We need the strength of the Lord. We need that divine strength of his might. The thing that can make, right, life come out of lifeless things. Can make material things out of nothingness. The, the power that can do anything and everything and even raise the dead. That's the kind of power that we require. But that's the kind of power that the Lord offers us. And that's the kind of power, if we're not serious about the, the spiritual war waging around us, that's the kind of power we leave on the table as we rush off to work every morning. That's the very thing that we need most. And we often tap into the least. Okay, so the natural question is, okay, how and why? We get both of those. In section 2, verses 11 through 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The, the how is answered in the first part of verse 11. How is it that we become strengthened in the Lord and the strength of his might? And the answer is this, another command, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Now, throughout the rest of this, uh, this, uh, this passage this morning, you'll hear whole armor, whole armor. And the idea of the whole armor is that we are to put on all of it. Otherwise, it doesn't help. I think about a hazmat suit or maybe more helpfully like a spacesuit. Can you imagine if you're an astronaut, you're going to do a spacewalk and you decide, hey, you know what? These big old giant mittens, they're no good. I'm going to take them off. I'm going to just go hands free. Not only is that unwise, but that person will die, right? In the vacuum, in the coldness of space, any break in the breach in this armor, right, will, or this suit will result in that person's death. See, the idea is that we are fully suited with everything that God has given to us. The whole thing. Put it all on. Right? Not some of it. Not look to particular parts and go, you know what I got? I got, I got the shoes with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I got these shoes. And as long as I have these spiritual kicks, I'm good. You need the whole thing. Whatever God has said that you are to be, wherever that source of strength is, it is all in. The soldier is all in. Put on all of it, the whole armor of God. The command to put on is not new to us, not in the book of Ephesians, right? Remember in, in chapter 4, you have that command repeated over and over that we are to put on the new self. We are to put on the new self, put off the old, put on the new. So put on, put off, right? Like clothing, put on this stuff, take off the dirty stuff when you come home. 
I mean, that, that's literally the idea. You put on the whole armor of God. Now, this is key. So if we think about what does this mean, though? Put on the whole armor of God. Like, I like to do that. What does that look like? What, what are we talking about? I think because Paul has already said, and like I said, almost everything he commands in this final crescendo, he has already addressed somewhere else in the book of Ephesians. Putting on and putting off, he has already addressed. And putting on the new self, then, Seems to be kind of another way of saying, put on the full armor of God. There is something that is transformed and new that we are to take upon ourselves. We are to live in such a way as to be putting on the transforming power of the gospel. We, we are to be different because we are, in fact, spiritually different. We're not different physically. When you became a Christian, you didn't get three inches taller, right? That would be nice. We didn't become extra strong or become a little more fit, right? We didn't change physically, but what we did, what did happen in us, according to Ephesians, is that we who were dead are now united with Christ and alive in him. So when we put on the new self, what is that new self? It is that redeemed inner nature. It is that new spirit and soul that is tied to God in the new covenant. It is the blessing of who God is and that we are his people and he is our God. It is the internalization of God's word, of, of letting the word, right, be implanted in our hearts and bear fruit. It is all of that. That's putting on the new self. That's putting on the whole armor of God. And can I say this? It is not just religious people acting in religious ways. See, here's the subtle danger, right? God's armor doesn't look like well, I go to this, I do this, and I have to do this. God's armor looks like I go to worship, I go to encourage and fellowship, I pray because of who God is and who I am because of Christ. The, the subtlety is incredibly dangerous and essential for us to clarify. I give you a couple of examples when I say that it's not about religious people doing religious things, but it's about the transformation of the soul because of the gospel. In 2 Timothy 3, you can turn there if you want, but I will walk you through it uh, very briefly. But in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, is that whole litany of how evil people will get in the final days, right? Understand this, it says, in the last days there will become times of difficulty. For people will be, and here's the list. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But listen to the very next verse that concludes this, this paragraph. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. See, the frightfulness of verse 5 of 2 Timothy 3 is that all of those things that are listed, these guys are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, all that stuff, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And yet, it can be claimed by many, if not all of these, that they have an appearance of godliness. They have an appearance, hear this, of religious godliness. They seem religious. They seem moral. They seem upstanding individuals. And all of that stuff that was just described, they are that. And yet they look on the outside like religious people doing religious stuff. These are church Sunday Christians. But there's a singular note. But they deny its power. Having the appearance of godliness, 
but having no power of godliness, having denied its power. See, that's the subtle difference between acting out, right? Religious stuff and being transformed by the gospel. The, the, you know, the, the difference is day and night, it's death or life. But nevertheless, on the outside, on the external, it could look just like the same kind of person. The Sunday Christian, they show up regularly to church, and they're still dead and seething on the inside. Why? Because they have no understanding of what it means to walk in the provision that God provides because they have not been transformed by the gospel of grace, nor do they understand what the whole armor of God even looks like. They have no capacity to put that on. Let me give you another passage and example in Colossians chapter 2. At the end of Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 and following, says a similar thing. He says, if Christ died with, if, if, Sorry, if with Christ you died to the elemental things, spirits of the world, why, as if you're still in the world, do you submit to regulations? Things like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have, listen again to that similar statement to 2 Timothy 3. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can say no. You can teach others to say no. Don't touch that. Don't taste that. Don't drink that. Don't do that. Right? And when all is said and done, it can be just religious, just external discipline, and have no value in helping us stop the indulgence of the flesh. So having said all that, like, okay, so okay, you've given us the bad news. The bad news is that we cannot depend upon ourselves, nor can we just put on external religious-looking stuff. It's not about doing stuff that looks like religion. It's about transformation of the soul. I get that. But again, if it means putting on the new self, putting on the armor of God, what does that look like? You could just read the rest of Colossians chapter 3. I read the last few verses of Colossians chapter 2 to you. And if you read the rest of chapter 3, you'll encounter these commands. I'll just walk you through them really quickly. You don't have to turn there. You can read that on your own. Immediately after saying they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, Paul says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, and idolatry. Verse 8 says, now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9 says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and put on the new self. Verse 12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ ruin your hearts. Be thankful. Verse 16 says, let the word of Christ richly dwell in, within you. Do, do you get where we're getting with this? It, it's not like it's that difficult, nor is it hidden meanings that we're trying to find. There is no mystery in this. God's word says it over and over again. What does it mean to put on God's armor? What does it mean to put on the new self? It is all those things. Putting to death the things that are of our former nature. Seeking the things of the Lord. 
seeking peace and worship, meditating upon the gospel and knowing the value of who we have in Christ, setting our affections differently on a regular basis. Some of you guys might feel like, well, you know, church is helpful, so I go if, if I need it. You know, um, religion's good, so I kind of participate where I can. Man, if your Christian faith is a side hustle, right, you'll find that there's no power there. The, the Christian is meant to be engaged regularly in looking towards the Lord because our life is hidden with Christ and God. We are engaged in looking towards the Lord because all of this stuff, the circumstances, good or bad, they are temporary, but there is something eternal to come. The Christian is constantly refocusing their hearts, their worship, their attentiveness, their exhortation. Even as, a, as our worship leader, Eugene, pointed out to us, it is about our horizontal worship, but that has an impact upon, I'm sorry, our vertical worship, that has an impact upon our horizontal relationships. That's what our lives are meant to be, transformed, renewed, a new life. That's what it means to put on God's armor. We are to prepare for a spiritual battle. And we don't do that by just put on, on the externals of religious stuff. We are supposed to put on the full armor of God. We are to live, right, like we are redeemed. We are to confess like we are the forgiven. We, we are to worship like we are his children. We are to hold fast his word like we are his followers. We, we come to the Lord regularly, always, and our identity becomes more and more ingrained to who he is. That's what it means to put on the full armor of God. That's the how. The second part, right, is the why. And it begins in the second part of verse 11. Verse 11 tells us the how. You do it by putting on the whole armor of God. And the second part of verse 11 says this, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We stand against spiritual powers. We stand against spiritual powers. This is the why. Why, why do we need God's armor? Well, we need it because we can't stand against spiritual, right, spiritually supernatural beings who are dead set towards our ruin. We can't stand against them in our own strength. We need the strength that God supplies, and we need to do it by the armament that he gives us. It says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The, the concept or the root word for stand is repeated three times in our verses this morning. That you may be able to stand in verse 11. That you may be able to withstand in verse 13. And to stand firm at the end of verse 13. And if you want to go to verse 14 next week, right? That's the opening command, the same root word, stand. So you have all of these stand, that you may be able to stand, stand firm, stand, right? You have this repeated sense of taking your ground and holding it. See, this is a military concept, right? This is what we're called to do. You, you are given a certain task, and that's the part that you defend. <clears throat> In team um, sports, there's a lot of different kind of defensive kind of strategies, right? Um, and that's what this is. It's a defensive strategy. And in team sports, you know, not to use military terms, but use sports terms, there is, in many team sports, something called a zone. Do you guys know what that is? Some of you guys, 
like not, not accustomed to the blessing of sports. You're wondering what that is. Well, what that means is that your team breaks up like the field or the court in certain quadrants. Quadrant, does quadrants mean only four? Certain sections, right? Like whatever section that might be. So if I'm an outside linebacker, then my zone, my section is from where the tight end lines up all the way to out of bounds. So any offensive player, as I peel back and I'm scanning, any offensive player that comes into my zone, that's the person that I have. If there's two guys in my zone, I trust that someone doesn't have someone in their zone and they'll float over to the one closest towards the rest of my teammates. So I take the furthest guy out. Simple concepts, works brilliantly. You need, you need quick thinking and fast-footed athletes. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Or you have us, right? Like, but whatever you got, that's what you send out. That's what a zone is. That's what a zone coverage is. That illustrates the idea of this idea of, of keeping your ground, of standing, right? Of holding your territory. You defend your own, your part, the thing that God has given to you. God is not necessarily asking you to defend spiritual things, right, in Russia. Or maybe he is. Maybe he's calling you there, right? Or New Zealand, Again, possibly, maybe some of you guys are. <clears throat> but wherever your sphere of influence in life is, that's your zone. That's where you have to stand, and that's where the enemy will attack you. You have to hold your ground against spiritual, personal, and genuinely real forces. Then you may be able to stand. How, how are we able to stand? Well, we're able to stand because we are putting on the whole armor of God. We are regularly and emphatically worshipers and followers of Jesus Christ in the things that we think about, in the things that we stop ourselves from thinking about, in how we're confessing regularly, how we're worshiping regularly, how the things of the Lord matter the most to us, how eternity right, matters more to me than the here and now. Like that kind of process of renewing the inner man constantly, putting on the, the new self constantly, that's how we put on the armor. That's how we stand, how we hold our ground or keep our zone from all the scheming of the devil. <clears throat> Two things in that phrase against the schemes of the devil. One is the term the devil. He is an actual being. Come on, let, let, let's be honest, right? Like if you're like me, I am so ingrained in my material, right, circumstantial world that if you tell me that there is a real devil, I go, of course, I, I believe that. I, I, I nod my head in agreement. I see it in the pages of scripture, right? He's our adversary. He's our enemy. <clears throat> um, he's our slanderer. He's the one that accuses us before the Lord regularly, accuses our own souls, tries to drive a wedge between us and the Lord, whether through guilt or through sin and licentiousness, he is the one that is actively, right, engaged in our downfall. <clears throat> he is prowling around like a lion looking for something to kill and eat. That, that's how the scriptures describe him, and I would affirm all of that. But in the reality of my existence, I got to admit that it's hard for me to believe that there is an actual person. Why? Because we haven't seen him. He hasn't shown I don't. I don't want him to show up, right? I'm glad he hasn't shown up, right? But I haven't seen the demon-possessed crazy person, right, calling on the name of Satan and, and cursing me. Again, Lord, don't let that happen. I'm just saying that out loud, right? The point being that the evil one who oppresses all things that are good and excellent and connected to the living God, that one is real. 
It, it, takes some, it takes some time for the materialist in us to recognize that this is our opponent. He, he is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. He is not any of the omnis because he's not God. He's a created being. He is limited in his scope, but he is powerful, more powerful than us. And he is cruel. There is this uh, um, portion of C.S. Lewis's um, Paralandra where he talks about the Satan figure, Dr. Weston, right? And then the, the hero of the book, you know, um, Ransom, Dr. Ransom, he finds Dr. Weston on this otherwise perfect planet. Nothing's bad on the planet, etc. And he finds Dr. Weston just sitting there because he has nothing to do, just ripping apart, right, some of the helpless creatures there, just tearing them to pieces. And this is how C.S. Lewis describes it. He says, it, talking about Dr. Weston, the Satan figure, it looked at Ransom in silence and at, and at last began to smile. We have often spoken, Ransom himself had often spoken, of a devilish smile. Now he realized that he had never taken those words seriously. The smile was not bitter nor raging, nor in any ordinary sense sinister. It was not even mocking. It seemed to be summoning ransom with horrible naivete of welcome into the world of its own pleasures, as if all men were at one in all of those pleasures, as if they were the most natural thing in the world and no dispute could ever have occurred about them. It did not defy goodness. It ignored it to the point of annihilation. This creature was wholehearted. The extremity of its evil had passed beyond all struggles into some state which bore a horrible similarity to innocence. It was beyond vice. The, the brilliance of that description is that this is how C.S. Lewis is trying to paint. What does it look like to have an adversary like the devil, a real being? a spiritual being with incredible powers and abilities that we do not possess as mortal beings. What is it like to have him as your enemy? It is this. It is, it is this, this evil that isn't just like I occasionally do bad things to you, but this is a wholehearted creature committed absolutely to every extremity of evil that he could possibly conjure, right? And he says it's strikingly, horribly similar to innocence, as if innocence and not knowing better, but knowing well, but not caring. That cruelty, that sinister nature, that's the being that we're up against. And he is scheming. The term for scheme, one commentator translates it insidious wiles. It means that he is putting his craft and his ability to our downfall. This is an outrageously dangerous description. And one that we don't take seriously enough. Look, I don't want us to fall into the extreme of saying that everything is satanic, you know? Um, I don't like my job. Job satanic, you know? I don't, like, I don't like the Raiders. Raiders satanic, right? Like, like everything is just satanic, you know? I don't like that chocolate bar. Satanic chocolate bar, right? Like, like everything is not satanic. Your car troubles, right? Your, your relationships, right? You're your breaking your diet again. All of that is not demonic, it could be you, and it could be your issues, but it might be. See, we don't want to say that this is, this is not all demonic stuff, and because of that, there is nothing that is demonic stuff. 
This is what the world will teach us. Either to say that it's all in and everything is demonic and satanic or none of it is. And the scriptures will tell us something in between. Do you realize that in the scriptures, you take the book of Job or you take the, the demon possessed, the, the, the demoniacs of the gospels. There are oftentimes that it's spiritual demons that possess people or that, that cause oppression on people, which include physical illness. Do you remember Job broke out in boas and all? Who caused that? That was satanic. Let me ask you, did Job know that? He did not. But you can imagine that something like this is going on. If we have cancer, if we're struggling with sickness, right? Is it all demonic? Not necessarily, but there's a possibility that it could be. That's why what we need is not a better doctor. We should seek a better doctor, right? What we need is not better medicine. We should seek, right, whatever human medicines that we have found that could be helpful. But we ultimately need for our souls and our hearts is to put on the new man, is to be strengthened with the strength that the Lord provides, is put on the whole armor of God and give no opportunity to the devil. That phrase occurred in chapter 4 of Ephesians, right? Give no opportunity to the devil. And it occurred in the context of being angry but not sinning, not letting the sun go down on your anger. So clearly sinful anger gives opportunity to the devil. But I would say that whole context of Ephesians 4, putting on the, 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 the acts of the old self, give opportunity to the devil, putting on falsehood instead of speaking truth to one another, right? As brothers and sisters in Christ, that's an opportunity for the devil. Thieving, stealing, right? Being self-centered and coveting, that's an opportunity for the devil. Corrupt talking, speaking in ways that are, that are, you know, that are not appropriate or that tear down, that's an opportunity for the devil. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, thaw, malice, that's chapter 4, verse 31. All of those are means by which the, the, the Satan, a real and supernatural being, he can use those as opportunities to scheme, and to present us his insidious wiles to cause us to be baited and to fall into his traps. Our passage continues. It's not just Satan, a singular individual, but verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A couple of things to take away from verse 12, because I think it's a continuation of this idea that we are trying to stand against the schemes of the devil and not just the devil, but against all of these things. <clears throat> the first thing to take away is it's not against flesh and blood. And we've said that already. If it was flesh and blood, it would be about fight and fight, right? It would be about his power versus my power. His skills versus my skills. It would be much more straightforward. But that's not the battle that we are waging. Not flesh and blood, but against all these spiritual forces and spiritual beings. The other thing to take away is that word wrestle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. If you're going to wrestle somebody, flesh and blood is probably the best. Right? Because then at least you know what you're handling. Okay. I'm not, I'm not saying in any way that I, I'm looking forward to wrestling the devil. I, I don't, I don't want to wrestle no demons or, or any, I don't want any of that stuff, right? But I am saying that the word wrestle tells us that it's a kind of fight that is, that is close quarters and that is intensely personal. Right? That's the thing about wrestling, right? Grappling, BJJ, 
Some of the brothers at BJJ, if you want to learn, you guys can roll with those brothers like on Sundays after church sometimes, right? Like this intensely personal, mano a mano, like hand to hand, that's the kind of combat that spiritual warfare looks like. We are not dealing with something that is just shoot arrows from a distance, right? Lobbing grenades. We're talking about close quarters combat. It is personal. It is intimate. It is dangerous. And it's not flesh and blood. We wrestle. We struggle. We fight hand to hand against forces that are far superior to us in spiritual power. I'm not saying that some of the things that we battle are not flesh and blood. We have a world that's against us. We have sinners that oppose the things of the Lord. We have entire governments and sections of government right, that, that oppose the things of Christ and that hate the things of, of Christianity. So we have human beings that oppose us, certainly. The point here, I think, is that the ultimate opposition to living as children of light is supernatural evil powers. Look at the ways that, that Paul identifies these. We battle, and then the way he sets it up, like grammatically, it's literally, like our English says, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he piles up these terms, I think, so that we understand not that there are these different levels of angelic ranks. That might be. I don't know. That's possible. That's what the Jewish teachers had taught. But more likely, I think, the idea is that they are organized in all kinds of different ways. But regardless of how they're organized, the point being that there is an entire, right, there's an entire army. There's an entire variety of demonic hosts that are scheming against us. And the terms that are used, that they're rulers, authority, they're cosmic powers in this present darkness, spiritual forces, suggest that their influence is not primarily direct, I'm going to hammer you with my fist, but their influence is probably in the world around us, in the things that take charge over us, in the seeking of lordship over our souls. I, I do not think it's, it's necessarily speaking of some kind of a, a demonic rank and file system, I think it's just saying that there are so many different ways that demonic forces are at work to try to draw us down, to try to remove us from our spiritual power that is in Christ, to keep us from putting on God's armor and so that we would finally fall. The how, in terms of being strong in God's power, is to put on his own armor. The why is because we stand against spiritual powers. And so at the end, the final verse, Paul brings us back to the beginning. He brings up this idea of taking up the whole armor of God again with this emphasis of standing firm. Look at verse 13. Therefore, based on what? All that he has said, that we need the strength that the Lord provides we need to put on his armor because our enemies are supernatural, powerful, wily, and all over the place and influence everything around us. And with all of that, right, if we understand all of that, then, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. It's almost like Paul is saying, put on the armor of God. And we're kind of like, wait, what? You know, in those moments where some emergency is taking place and someone says, hey, grab that flashlight and run outside and you don't immediately move, right? Unless you're like one of those super obedient soldier types, right? Hey, grab that flashlight and go outside. Yes, sir. And then you're just gone. You don't even know why. 
most of us like kind of hesitate. We need to think this through. We need to understand what's going on. We need the how and the why. He's given us that. So he brings us back to the beginning. So therefore, this is why I'm telling you to take up the whole armor of God. Put it all on. So that you would be able to withstand in the evil day. He says it in two ways. One, oh, I didn't put it that way. To withstand in the evil day. Uh, it means either that there is a day coming that is so evil that you need to be fully armored. Or it means that the, this day, this age that we live in, is evil. I think it's a combination of both. Because in a sense, it's true that the day that we live in is evil. Paul says that in other occasions, that we are in the last days. We are in the evil days. But the way he presses it here, that you may be able to stand in evil days, suggests that that particular evil day is not here. We live in an evil age where the entire world is influenced by demonic thoughts and ideologies and is constantly like ramming its stuff into us. We are at war and waging war, at least war is waged against us, from every spiritual being that is opposed to the things of the Lord. And we are to put on God's armor so we can withstand, right? We can withstand in the evil day. There's probably a day coming, right? A particular moment in your life where evil, circumstantial, like tragedies, someone dies, you get sick, right? Right? Or moral, someone sins against you, right? Bad things happen to you. You yourself sit against someone else, whatever it is. For that evil day, in preparation of those moments where things go really bad, take on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand or withstand, that you may be able to hold your ground. Can I point out to you that in this verb, this idea of standing or withstanding or standing firm, right, in that military culture of Rome, you are supposed to hold your ground. But I want you to understand that the command is not for you to win. The command for you is just to hold firm. Stand your ground, right? If the command was, hey, you need to win, you need to win your part, you need to win your battles, etc., that's a lot more challenging, maybe impossible. But the whole idea is what God has given to you has the capacity of letting you stand firm even to the end. And so that last part of uh, verse 13, right, and having done all, See, that's where the preparation comes in. Having done all suggests that this is something that we have prepared beforehand. Having done all, like in Ephesians 4, putting on the new self. Having done all, as in renewing our minds, like Romans 12 and 2 Timothy 3 talks about. Looking above where Christ is enthroned, like Colossians 3 talks about, right? Having done all, as in regularly rehearsing the work of Christ and his gospel to us for the praise of his glorious grace in Ephesians 1. Having done all of that, we then have the capacity to stand firm in that evil day or in this evil age for whatever we face, whatever battles are coming, we have the capacity to stand firm in the strength of his might. And this is just the opening, I, I think, kind of command that will lead us into some of the particulars. But man, this is for us and this is for us today. If you're feeling lethargic, disconnected from the Lord, if you're feeling like, man, you are not where you ought to be, you're probably correct. But the answer is not trying to find a new experience, right? Find a new teaching, 
Find a new this or a new that. The, the answer is put on the new self. And perhaps you have not ever put on the new self. Perhaps you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for transformation in life. You need to do that. But if you are a Christian, then perhaps what you're doing is you're forgetting about the fundamentals of living. Living for him and in him and to him. Making Christ the central focus of your thoughts, your intentions, your daydreams, right, of everything that is inside of you. That's how we become strong in God's power. That's how we prepare for spiritual war. That's how we stand firm in God's armor, and that's how we find strength for spiritual war. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, that it might give us encouragement to believe that with all that is raging around us and against us, Christ has overcome them all. Father, help us to not just believe that Christ is capable, but that in him, we then have the capacity to stand firm no matter what. We praise you for your infinite mercy and grace towards us in saving us. And we ask that you would renew our hearts and our minds so that we would put on the full armor of God and would stand. Lord, we know that difficult times will come for each of us and that these times themselves generally are difficult for every Christian. But teach us to hold hands, to look to you, and to be renewed in the inner man because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.